Welcome to the crystal clear edition of the Daily Standard Podcast, a.k.a. the mother of all podcasts. I'm your host, Michael Graham. This podcast brought to you, as always, by SaneBox.com. Take control of your email. Visit SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard for a great deal. And also, from the Broadmoor Resort, Colorado Springs, hosting our Weekly Standard Summit, June 15th through 17th. This is a great event. Bill Crystal, Fred Barnes, Steve Hayes, Charles Krauthammer, yours truly. And this year, also, U.S. Senator Mike Lee, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, they're all going to be there, and there's a terrific deal available until 11.59 p.m. on April 15th. You can get an immediate credit of up to $400. It's the Weekly Standards Tax Day price break. You've got till 11.59, April 15th, a credit of up to $400. Just visit weeklystandardevents.com for all the details. That's weeklystandardevents.com. Dot com. Can't wait to see you there. Bill, I just before we started, I got a text from my good friend Steve Bannon who says, Michael, what have they done with the real Donald Trump and where are they hiding him? Bill, you're in charge of the new neocon cabal over there at the White House. Who is this guy? Well, he's not a Steve Bannonite. He never was. He was a businessman, mostly gave money to Democrats, opportunist, kind of a demagogue, kind of a con man, kind of out for himself, kind of a little bit of everything. The one thing he seems to believe for 30 years was he didn't like trade agreements with China and Japan and Mexico. I think that's about it when you really get down to it, though. Uh, he was he appropriated the kind of Bannon nationalist rhetoric. He believes some of that stuff. He pro American, you know. We got to be tough. Generals used to fight tougher wars than we fight today. But at the end of the day, he's a guy who wants to be popular, wants to be loved, and he's busy adjusting when he sees that the, some of the Bannon stuff doesn't work. He's a pretty ruthless guy in his own way, you know. He fired two campaign managers in the course of what six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewandowski had been with him a long time. The Manafort, who had really helped him, I think, brought him through the convention. But hey, they became inconvenient. They're overboard. Fired Flynn after 27 days. And Bannon's probably looking back at that and thinking, "Gee, you know, who's next in that in that parade?" <laughs> Uh, I'm, uh, it looks like it's alphabetical, possibly, Mr. <laughs> Bannon. I'm not sure. But let's talk about the policy, because it's one thing to say, yeah, he sure has made a movement. But, man, to go from we've got to stay out of these stupid wars, mind our own business. I mean, as close to isolationism as any major party candidate you know, since the old Taft era to not just the missile strike, which was pinpoint, but really unleashing Nikki Haley to get up in the grill, as the kids say, of the uh, of the Russians, uh, sending F-35s over into the arena, North Korea, not just sending the ships over, but this kind of surprise, I think they call it an elephant walk, where they bring all their jets onto right. uh, the thing, and they did it in Japan with lots of publicity. He, he wanted people, the North Koreans to know, look at all of our planes. And that, that, you know, He went from... You know, isolationist Al to Ronald Reagan pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, look, there was always a tension between his isolationist side and his tough guy side. You could be a tough guy isolationist in principle. In practice, though, when kids are getting gassed in Syria or they're violating an agreement that we were sort of a party to, and the same with when our when same thing when the North Koreans just decide to stick a finger in our in our eye and and uh, uh, and others when the generals say, look, we really need to knock back ISIS in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and this big bomb would work great. Part of Trump thinks, good, okay, I'm tough. They can't push me around and they can't push America around. And suddenly, this is why when you're mugged by reality, you become less of an isolationist and more of an interventionist. Now, you can still become a kind of ham-handed interventionist, and that's a bit of a problem with Trump. I also would say to his credit, he seems to have learned something from the meetings he's had and from the people he has around him. Uh, and the final point I'd make is, and you and I have discussed this several times, 
the institutions have a certain body weight. You become president, you think, I, I think this, I think that. Well, it turns out there's 70 years of history behind a certain other path, and there's a huge part of the U.S. government and of U.S. society and of foreign institutions that have an investment in this path. And it's not so easy, just like taking over any business or any university or right. anything, you know, magazine. You, you know, it's not so easy. You can be pretty strong-willed, but still, there are an awful lot of incentives. And you know, maybe it's easier just to kind of go along with the way it's been done. That could be bad, incidentally, if you're just going along with bad policies. In this case, most of these cases, I think it's mostly for the good. Uh, and he made the mistake, if you think of it this way, or Bannon, from Bannon's point of view, Trump made the mistake of appointing people who didn't agree with Bannon and people of real stature. I mean, H.R. McMaster and James Mattis and right. Mike Pompeo are not going to roll over for Steve Bannon. And they're not even actually going to roll over for Trump in the sense that if Trump has one idea that he's expressed a few times on the campaign trail or one thought when right. he watches Fox and Friends, <laughs> they're not going to suddenly say, oh, yes, Mr. President, we're changing American defense policy or American foreign policy. Because that they'll say, Mr. President, that's a good point, but let mm -hmm. me also walk you through this and maybe we need to do this. And remember what Prime Minister Abe said to you a month ago, and let's also read all this history here. And then they tell him some history he doesn't know. You know, it's it's so I think it turned out that McMaster, Mattis, Pompeo, maybe Tillerson, a little hard to tell, uh, personally, and then the institutions or the parts mm -hmm. of the government that they're head of, uh, sort of ended up having a lot more weight than people who had a naive view that Trump was going to come in and throw his weight around. Uh, I think those guys are a little disappointed. But again, finally, it's also that he doesn't really have a deep grounding in this. If Pat Buchanan became president of the United States, he would ignore everything that Jim Mattis said to him and ignore everything H.R. McMaster said to him and ignore everything the State Department ever told him. And he has a worldview and he's right. written it up in books and he has his own experts. Trump had a little of that, you know, a couple of mm -hmm. Bannonites, a couple of people who were on Fox, <laughs> but not enough at the end of the right. day. And and Casey McFarland, whom we liked because he saw her on sure. Fox, nice person, you know, she's being exiled. Seb Gorka. Ambassador to Singapore. Seb Gorka's looking at what country he can get an ambassadorship <laughs> to now as well. I'm betting it's not Hungary. That's Bannon, the yeah, thought. that's probably not. Bannon's off the Security Council. So I think some of this was, I don't know if it was inevitably going to mm -hmm. happen. I do think the appointment of McMaster especially was a huge moment. If Mike Flynn were still National Security Advisor, you would have much more of a Flynn-Bannon sure. candidate Trump type thing going on. Mm -hmm. McMaster, National Security Council is a very powerful position. McMaster knows his mind. He's a very able guy. Putting him in there right at the center of the foreign policy apparatus in the administration and in the White House, and so he seems to have Trump's confidence, um, that really is a, that was a big moment. Well, there's something else, too, and maybe I'm more aware of it because I worked in campaigns and got paid by candidates. Donald Trump is a cheapskate. He, you know, he, he. There were stories about how right. the, he would not. He would look at the bills. Like, Why are we spending for this venue? I can get it cheaper. You know, lights. What? You know, and there's the the cheapest way to get people to cheer you when you're a president of the United States is military force. It is so. If you if you do small things like right. some tomahawks in Syria and a bomb in Afghanistan, you send some ships around. They're not even to fight. They're just floating around. Man, what a way, what a cheap way to buy popularity and love and gravitas and and Trump has got to feel that. It's a lot easier to move a ship than it is to move say an Obamacare repeal bill through a divided Republican controlled Congress. Yeah, totally. I think he learned that lesson. But also I would say it's not, maybe you don't buy popularity with the public which is probably ambivalent about the use of force. Mm -hmm. You buy popularity with some elites, I would include right. myself, I guess, you know, sort of neoconservative elites, but also Clinton liberal types mm -hmm. who want the US to be a executive exercising leadership, right. standing up to dictators, honoring treaty commitments, et cetera. 
And in that respect, and Trump cares about that. Trump pretends to be this big populist, but sure. he cares what uh, you know the New York Times says, and he probably cares in a way what the Weekly Standard says. And he likes the fact that I think that now he's doing some things that he's getting some bipartisan right. praise for. And certainly, I think he deserves some praise for some of these things. I don't know when you're. I mean, the the, pop, the the support for the military action so far, the polls I've seen are from the upper 50s into the 60s, yeah, which is good. And he's got a hard, you know, anti 40. Right. So that's for him. This is this is good news. Bill, I've got a why Trump really dropped that bomb conspiracy theory to run by you in just a second. But first, I got to make sure everybody knows about SaneBox.com, who are sponsoring this podcast. So thank you very much. Support SaneBox.com and you're supporting the Daily Standard podcast. If you're like me and you're one of those people who's been buried under email pretty much since email started, you've never been able to get caught up. You look and you see that mountain of either unopened email or email you meant to get back to and you think, I'm never going to get back to email zero. I'm never going to have an email box where when it goes, I open it, and there's just the email that I want to read. But you know what? I was wrong. I have gotten back to Inbox Zero, and I did it thanks to SaneBox.com. SaneBox sorts through your email, moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Now, besides getting rid of the junk that you don't care about so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's also this great feature called the black hole. You get an email from someone who you know you never want to get an email from again. Spam, sales pitches, brother-in-law. I, I'm kidding about the sales pitches. Um, and so you never, so you just take that that one email and you drag it into the black hole. Poof, you will never hear from that sender again. It feels so good, and it cleans up your email, and SaneBox isn't a different email system. You can stick with whatever you've got. It kind of it goes on top of your email to manage your email for you and get you back to Inbox Zero. And you can try it right now for free for two weeks by going to SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. But it's better than that because you try it for two weeks, and, you, and if you decide to buy it, you get a $25 bonus because you went through SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. S-A-N-E-B-O-X. SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. Okay, Bill. How long do you think they went from letting him know that they had the biggest bomb ever, called the mother of all bombs, and then finally dropping it? Everyone keeps talking about how it was Nicholson on the ground there. I'm telling you, from the day after they told him about that, he's like, can we drop that bomb now? Can we drop that bomb? Find me a place to drop. Guam, can we drop that bomb now? Come on. I wonder wonder about that. I have a high opinion of, I know Nicholson slightly, of of the military in general. They tend not to... You know, be pushed into doing things that shouldn't be done from a military right. point of view by even by presidents. You know, they're pretty resistant to that sure. after going through Vietnam, something that Senator McMaster wrote a whole book about. So, I, I, on the one hand, I have a high regard for Nicholson Mattis. I don't think they would just uh, Dunford, the chairman. I don't think they would just do that. Having said that, I also must have, must, it must, I mean, it probably was militarily a good idea sure. because there was a network of tunnels. They probably also know enough. To know how to what's the term in business manage up, and you know what you know what if it's like fifty fifty let's use it let's make a little bit of a deal of it let's release the video of it exactly. and let's you know make our boss up there in the White House and in Mar-a-Lago think you know what this is this military is kind of coming through here and if you were Nicholson and you think we cannot pull out of Af- Afghanistan that would be a disaster and Trump has no great stomach for leaving fifteen thousand ground troops in Afghanistan mm-hmm. he's what's another war that we screwed up we got to get out of mm-hmm. these wars that go on forever if you were thinking about well how do I 
within the bounds of what's appropriate, obviously. How do I kind of get him a little more invested in this? It's not the stupidest thing to do to, yes, get credit for dropping this huge I'm bomb. I'm telling you, the big red phone rings, Mr. President, this bomb isn't big. Uh, it's huge. Yeah, the biggest. Be. I'm the president uh, who dropped the biggest bomb ever. I mean, it goes in the history books. He's got it right there. A, a, a complete divergent, the divergence here. There has been some talk about the morality of dropping this bomb and calling it a weapon of mass destruction. And I, you know, I do a lot of uh, media in Europe, and so I deal with a lot of European pacifists. And so my Twitter feed was full of, you said Syria used gas. Well, you're using weapons of mass destruction. I compl- I'm completely baffled by that argument. Do, do progressives really believe that force is inherent evil, inherently evil and that all force is at certain level morally equivalent? You know, especially if it's used by the U.S. military, some of them believe that. I guess. I mean, I would no a lot of it. And look, going back one step, do they believe that like a bigger bomb is worse than a <laughs> exactly. kills necessarily kills more people than ten smaller bombs? Right. You know, do they know mm-hmm. what B ones or B twos drop? Do they? Uh, incidentally, the civilian casualties, which are deplorable, right. and we should try to uh, contain, usually have come from drone strikes. Right. Often, drones are quite small, right? This, Af- this one seems not to have caused. Afghanistan civilian. says zero civilian yeah. casualties. So no, we will- that's the right metric. I mean, I have no problem right. with progressives saying. You know, we should be more careful on civilian casualties. That's a reasonable, I think the military is very careful, but that's a reasonable thing to say. I would say the only little touch of liberalism within me on this, though, which maybe (laughs) I have one touch more than you do, I don't know, is there's something a little weird on Twitter about all these people, you know, sort of chest beating about it, kind of high fiving. Boy, that bomb is huge, you know? It's a little childish and a little, you know, too much like adulation of big bombs. Um, But uh, yeah, look, I think it was militarily, sounds like it was military justified right. in this case. As you say, the Afghans say it didn't kill any civilians, but it is kind of fun. It's such a perfect Trumpy kind of it, headline. It is, it biggest is the, bomb ever I, dropped, who biggest else? non-nuclear bomb ever dropped in Afghanistan. Who yeah. else? Who else? So now let's talk about what matters here, which is these pieces of foreign policy changes, et cetera. Do you see a, a Trump doctrine, it's too early to say emerging, but maybe little green shoots? Or And also, do you think this is going to work? Is, for example, the fact that this week China abstained when we asked for the investigation of Syria, which was then vetoed by Russia on the Security Council. But the fact that they abstained, the fact that they've turned around some shipments of coal and sent them back to North Korea and bought our coal, is that a sign of something? Or is that just, you know, in the, they're playing Trump the same way that other people played Trump and this is all you know, noise? Well, we'll see. I mean, they are obviously trying to play Trump, and so we'll see if he's and his team are smart enough to play them back and whether we end up actually achieving things or not. I think the big story is, I guess I'd put it the opposite way, there, the, the Trump doctrine that looked like it might emerge, which I'm going to call the Trump-Bannon-Flynn doctrine, has not emerged and is in real retreat and is not going right. to emerge. Whether we're going to just have sort of ad hoc decision-making, which can turn out okay, whether we're going to have sort of chaotic ad hoc decision-making that turns out very mixed, whether we're going to have toughness here and weakness there because he happens to like one guy and not like another guy who has a good dinner at Mar-a-Lago with this prime minister and <laughs> bad one with that. I mean, who knows? You know what I mean? But I think we're at least in a – we're defaulting to something closer to a, I'd say, somewhat ad hoc version of normal foreign policy as opposed to a radically new Trump doctrine. Well, that's a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. why were people like me so opposed to Trump? One reason, a lot of it was his character. That hasn't changed and his general lack of understanding of what it takes to be president. But still, a lot of it was that he actually was right. going to be kind of a Pat Buchanan-like light. I don't think that's the case. Now, we'll be interesting on other areas. What about trade? Right. I think it'll be very interesting to see that over the next 12 months. 
he's backed off on designating China as a currency manipulator. Mm-hmm. Does he generally move back to a more you know, moderately free trade right. attitude towards a lot of the nations. He's not going to do TPP. He's not going to move ahead with trade agreements much. But is he going to, you know, rescind them or renegotiate them? NAFTA, is that he's going to, quote, renegotiate? Is that going to be, tech, you know, sort of cosmetic changes? Right. Or is he really going to risk kind of the U.S.-Mexico mm-hmm. relationship? So those are, I mean, there's a huge amount, obviously, right. up in the air at this point. Well, you know, Donald Trump bragged early on about he's keeping his promises. That's one of the things that his supporters said he was keeping his promises. And then this week, our friend over at the Washington Examiner, Sarah Westwood had a piece, 11 flip-flops from Donald right. Trump, and I think six of them were executed on the same day. Is The argument is, if somebody doesn't have... I'd rather deal with someone who's principled and wrong than someone who's unprincipled and then occasionally drifts into the right. Where does Bill Crystal fall on that? I mean, whatever I think people should do, I would say politically keeping promises is overrated. I mean, if, if you end up making – people are very – well. people live their lives and they change their mind about things. Right. And they and if you run a business and you start off with this strategy and it doesn't right. work, you change the strategy. And if you start off in, as a baseball – with a football team with a running attack and you're not doing well, you go right. to passing. I mean, people are pretty used to uh, others changing tactics and even strategy. They'd like some consistency of goals. Right. But making America great again is a pretty broad goal. So I think he gets a lot of running room on on these what I would call, you know, these principles that are, mm-hmm. you know, we think of them as kind of you should be free pro trade or anti trade. Right. But I think he thinks, look, it's all a matter of getting jobs back to America and, you know, making America cutting right. good deals. And he's always said he wants to cut good deals. Well good deals by definition is a pragmatic you know, case by right. case way of approaching things, right? It's not here's my principle and I'm applying right. it across the board. I mean, I would argue as a country, when you have the rule of law, the constitution, there's something to be said for a kind of across the board principled approach to things and in foreign policy too, mm-hmm. a kind of consistency. But and maybe he'll sort of default to that a little bit too. But I think we're we're looking at very much of an ad hoc case by case presence. Well, as a principled, consistent person, I always uh, remember the phrase. Consistency is the hobgoblin of people who have no character and won't stand by what they believe in. I, th- yeah, I think right, I got that correct. Yeah, right. But I love the people who are now going, I didn't vote for some New York liberal, squishy, re- semi-Republican. I voted for Donald Trump. And I'm yeah. like, okay, I'm sorry, I don't understand your problem here. I, isn't he becoming exactly what he's been? He is yeah. a, a, like a, a Charlie yeah. Baker-esque, uh, Larry um, uh, Hogan-esque, Hogan, yeah. kind of that wing. You know, he's Rockefeller Republican who's richer than Rockefeller, well, almost as rich as Rockefeller, but just had the uh, uh, societal flavor of Queens. Yeah, and, and understood that there was an untapped resource, an underserved market out there right. in the anti-immigration, anti-trade, slightly nativist, mm-hmm. you know, Fortress America sure. community. But no, absolutely. Look, just the photo I keeps coming back to me is the Trumps at the Clinton, the Clintons exactly. at the Trumps wedding. That's right. He cares about the approbation of a certain type of New York society mm-hmm. and the New York, you know, moderate liberal political and social types, and uh, that's the world he lived in. Now, he has that Queen's chip on his shoulder about some of those guys, so he's a little different from Mike Bloomberg or whatever, and so he won't be for gun control. But in terms of actually limiting government, free markets as opposed to you know big government XM solutions, Exim Bank type stuff, he is not where Cato or Heritage or the Weekly Standard are, for that matter. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, he could uh, end, end up making some prudently, pragmatically, pragmatically Decent decisions, right. I suppose, case by case. Though I don't, there you. But then you're betting a lot on him or the people around him. I mean, really, mm-hmm. and since he doesn't know very much, you're really betting a lot on his top aides. 
I'm okay with that sort of in foreign policy because of McMaster and Mattis. Uh, I don't know. Does Gary Cohn have a good judgment right. about economic policy? I just think Steve we don't Mnuchin? know. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. know. I mean, Suicide Squad. Let's keep coming back to that. He backed <laughs> Suicide Squad. It was terrible. Um, so uh, one last thing to get to because it was the hot story of the week, and that was the United Airlines flight where United, after they boarded the flight, they had some people who needed to get to another plane, some staff, and so they tried to buy people off the plane when no one took their offer at 800 bucks. They just grabbed people and and told them, we've we've taken your seat away from you. Now, to a lot of people, we didn't know they could do that. This right. was shocking. One guy, a doctor who had patients to see the next day, he said, said, I'm not getting off. And so they send in the cops, and the cops drag the guy off, break two of his teeth, give him a concussion, you know, break his nose. And the first thing that the head of United does is say, my team did a great job. And it's obviously not turned out that way. Uh, Bill Crystal, where are you on this? I fly a lot. I've flown a lot in the 20 years or so since starting The Standard and giving speeches and talking to authors and everything else, obviously. You know, for me, though, it's funny. I, I was a professor. I didn't travel that much and did modest travel. Mm-hmm. Went up and drove up. Our folks were always nearby. And so we drove up and down the New Jersey Turnpike where the flying places. Then I went to government, flew a little bit when I worked with Bill Bennett. There, the government kind of arranges. You, you know, it's not luxurious. You can go first class, I think, on the on the long flights and coach on those short ones, but at least someone gets your tickets for you, right. and they kind of drive you to the airport if you're traveling with the cabinet secretary. Then I became Vice President Quayle's domestic policy advisor, and, and very shortly afterwards, his chief of staff. So for three and a half years, apart from a couple of vacations with, with Susan and the kids, I flew on Air Force Two. Really? That's good. That's that's nice flying. <laughs> they don't drag you off the plane, you know, there's your own plane, your own everything. You don't go through the TSA, you don't... You don't you know, anyway, they don't run a, out of peanuts. It's a very different life. So what's it? And what, what when is, I left, when I left, I remember someone. T- I said, you know, it's going to be a little bit. Someone said to me, it's going to be a big adjustment, Bill. You've, you're kind of young, and you, you mm-hmm. kind of got lucky. And you know, I did get lucky, right. and it was Quail's chief of staff. So you don't, you have a sort of experience just living as a, you know, mm-hmm. young adult, medium, <laughs> middle-aged adult, you know, with kids, flying places, driving places, just the right. normal you know, problems of life, which isn't really true. But 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 he his point was he had been in government too. His point was actually you have experienced the problems of life. I drove to work, you know. I didn't have a car and right. driver chauffeur. I hit traffic, you know what I mean. I sure. went out on weekends with the kids and waited in line at McDonald's mm-hmm. like everyone else. I was very well aware of all the normal inconveniences of life. The one I was really spared from, ironically, when you think about it, really the, was right. was air travel. So Air Force Two is so wildly different from, you know, United and <laughs> What's America it like compared Delta. to Air Force One? I mean, how— It's when, just a less fancy, less well-appointed— it was an older plane at the time mm-hmm. version of Air Force One. But it's in principle, it's the same because anything could happen to the president. You right. have to be willing to able to talk to anyone. And, you know, and you have the Secret Service, of course, if you're the vice president. It's, it's less— well, a less grand version of the same mm-hmm. idea. But still very much you land, you, the cars pull up to meet you. There's mm-hmm. no—the— they. The baggage is checked, you know, separately and so forth, and is delivered to your hotel room, and it's uh, it's 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 a nice wow. way to go. So that was the biggest adjustment, actually. Weirdly, when I left the White House, <laughs> everything else, you know, was fine. I drove to an office building instead sure. of driving to the White House. I went out to lunch, and you know, it right. didn't. Uh, it was really similar, you know. Uh, home was identical. So you haven't, you didn't have the experience of the cattle call humiliation that flight has become. But I did, but I hadn't had it, and then I started flying. So then 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, I started flying everywhere. And, you know, I sort of, yeah, I think it was in those years that it really changed. I Mm -hmm. mean, I, as I remember uh, meeting uh, our oldest daughter was then 10, so this is the early 90s, at the gate uh, when her grandmother had put her on a flight in New York. 
and you know had put her on the flight, given sure. her to the stewardess, and we got her off mm-hmm. the flight. You know, the stewardess walked right. her off like after the passengers. You know, and, but we were not at security; we were at the gate, and that seems to me was like ninety two, ninety three. I don't really know when the big change happened. Right. I guess mid nineties, late nineties, uh, before two, September two thousand one. Well, yes, some of it was be, a yeah. lot of it was. Remember the scare with the Egypt Airs? Some oh, of it yeah. was pre nine eleven. But I agree that was a huge yeah. after nine eleven, and and that is yeah. No, I'm I know you. I know got all worked up about it. You come into the office and scream and complain. I would. Scream I'm and totally. Complain. I'm actually go. I'm usually a complainer. I can't wait in line. The kids make fun of me. at restaurants. I get you know impatient if we have to wait three minutes. I said, let's go somewhere else. I've got to say, weirdly, on the airport stuff. I guess I just traveled so much at some point in the late nineties, you know, early mid two thousands. I was it wore just you down. speaking so much. Yeah, I just became zen about it. You know what? This is. I'm going to wait here in line for twenty minutes. I'm going to right. get to have, you know a TSA person is going to search this and tell me I've, this mm-hmm. this shampoo bottle is too big and I'm just not going to get upset. I'm going to sit in some cramped plane. We're going to wait. 45 minutes on the tarmac. Ugh. I'm going to read my book. I'm just going to say, you know what? As long as it doesn't crash, as long as everyone gets there safely, I'll, I'm going to be okay about it. That's Whereas a, you come in the office and you've very, got steam coming out of your out of your ears. That's a very noble and adult worldview, one that I do not share at any level. And the media traffic, web traffic said, on this United story just exploded. And people I, were asking me, why is this? Why, I mean, If I were still doing talk radio, we would have done nothing else but that topic for the whole week, except for maybe the mother of all bombs, bombs which should have been dropped on United <laughs> Airlines. But um, the, uh, the reason is because flying has become so hard and because it is such a you versus the man. And the man, who's not always a man, is right there with their hands often in your body parts and mm-hmm. you you standing there you're you know you, the the line is ridiculous because it's not staffed in any system according to who's going to show up it's just kind of random and so you have the, you don't know if you can make your flight you're worried about missing your flight you finally get up to the front you have sometimes you take off your shoes sometimes you don't there's no consistency you don't you tell your laptop and so then at the end here you are you're holding your trousers up with one hand as you're standing your stocking feet waiting for your nothing to come through that you know this is all just security theater it's never prevented a single attack ever and then you find out that after you go through that, you can get on the plane, and they can just throw you off because yeah, yeah. oh, we got to put someone on from another airline. Sorry, sucks to be you. I'm, what? Oh my gosh, you could feel the palpable anger, and I think it's because the TSA and airlines are where most Americans encounter bureaucracy. That a lot of the bureaucracy they used to deal with is kind of gone. Like the DMV, you do a lot on the line now, right. you know, and Social Security, you type, you, know, you get your kid to type it in, and it's you know stuff happens. Where do you hit, get the boot heel of government bureaucracy? It is at the airports, and there are people like me who just seethe at watching their fellow citizens being treated this way, treated like presumed criminals. You're sitting on a plane, minding your own business. The doctor literally did nothing until they came to get him. All he said was, "I'm not getting off. This is my seat." That's all he said. And that's unbearable. You must comply. You must obey. Out he went, and now he's going to own a large share of the United Continental Company when the lawyers are finished. No, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that point of view, and I at times have thought, what if a candidate ran on abolishing yes. TSA? Yes. I actually think it would be like there'd be huge uproar and horror, and then he could no. end up you know, getting 80% of the vote. Absolutely. So, um, so I'm very sympathetic <laughs> to you. I'm just saying personally, since I would have mm. killed over 10 years ago, if I actually <laughs> l- allowed myself to... I- I- internally have the you know mm. emotions and sentiments that you have. I just have sort of chilled out on it. But I agree, it's not a good. It's it's sort of a discouraging thing for a free country to see That's people, what, that you know, free it. citizens, yep. kind of doing this. And it's done so stupidly, as you say. And the nine-year-old girl has to take off her shoes, and it's like, oh God, you know. Well, anyway, well, let's safe travels to you, and you Crystal, too, right? and safe travels to all of our listeners. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to the Daily Standard podcast on iTunes and at Google Play. While 
while you're there, please give Bill a five-star review. He certainly earned it. Skip me. And leave any comments that you'd like to as well. Tell your friends you're getting great content from the Weekly Standard right here on the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham.